Good morning, Westridge. Well, it's July. We're all here together. That must mean the start of a new four-part message series. Am I right? Except for those of you here last week, which got a preview, a bonus message to make it a five-part series. Remember the question from last week? What's in your hand? Very good. And I'm going to need your help uh, because it's a long haul. It's a long haul. Uh, so I'm going to need you to show up every Sunday. You've already got one down, so just three left. I'm going to need you to be your usual mocking, insouciant self. Keep me energized, okay? I guess not. I guess not. It's not gonna, this one's not going to work. I was reading in the New York Times this week in an op-ed an article about uh, meditation, uh, the benefits of meditation. And among other things, the scientific experiment showed meditation increased our ability to pay attention and it enhanced our ability to show compassion. Long before 21st century scientists ran experiments, the Bible taught the benefits of meditation. The Bible's always advocated for us to be more reflective, introspective, contemplative. It hones our spiritual listening skills, and that's really what this message series is about. And nothing helps us be more aware than meditating on a well-phrased question. Turns out, the Bible is full of poignant questions. And they are as au courant as they were when they were written. And so in this July series, we've time to only look at four of those questions. And so I've chosen two from the first book in your Hebrew Bible, Genesis. And I've chosen two from the first book in your New Testament Bible, Matthews. They're called life questions. They're appropriate for all of us at all times. But, 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 first... We have to hear the question. We have to hear the question. And therein lies the problem. Lots being written today about our inability to listen. I said our inability to listen. Today. Our lack of awareness. Causes are varied. Some people talk about our fast-paced world. We're always in a hurry. We're mentally saying, get to the point. I know you say that every Sunday. (laughs) Technology gets blamed also. We text, listen to music, drink coffee, and listen to a message in church. Like some of you are doing right now. Paul Tournier, the Swiss psychiatrist, says that for the most part, we live with dialogues of the deaf. Relationships in which no one listens to anyone. Have you ever been in a meeting, and I hate meetings to begin with, but I really hate these kind of meetings, where there's an agenda and someone's moving through the agenda and there are people sitting on the periphery and they're texting or they're emailing instead of paying attention to the person speaking in the meeting. Or they're looking off in space thinking about their next appointment reloading their conversational cartridge to launch the next volley. Now, if it's true, we don't listen as 
we should, and I think it is. Here's the real question for this series. I wonder how much more difficult it is to listen to God's questions for us. To cultivate our spiritual listening skills. Have you ever uh, considered the fact that God might have something to say to you? If you could be quiet enough and still enough to hear Him? And unless we create some quiet moments, some space, His questions will get drowned out in the white noise of our culture. Where the Bible records God asking questions, those are perfect places for us to pause and sharpen our spiritual listening skills. And in the process of listening to God and being honest with ourselves, we'll gain insight into our questions for God. The very first recorded question was asked just after the fall, capital F, what theologians call the first sin that created this whole mess we're in. The event that precipitated humankind being expelled from the Garden of Eden. Our first ancestors, you know the story right there at the beginning of Genesis. Our first ancestors broke the one and only commandment they've been given. Eating from the tree of good and evil. Most of you are familiar with that. But I want to read just a portion of those events from the message to remind you just exactly how it went. You ready? Immediately the two of them did see what's really going on. Saw themselves naked. Talk about a wardrobe Malfunction. (laughs) They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. And when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden, hid from God. And so God, now he asked the first question of the first man. God called to the man, where are you? He said, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you gave me as a companion. She gave me the fruit from the tree. And yeah, I ate it. God said to the woman, what's this you've done? The serpent seduced me, she said. And I ate it. Where are you? It's still the first question God asks of us when we get serious about a fresh encounter with Him. And so let's increase our spiritual listening skills this month, shall we? Okay, the the, the four of us will do this this month, whether we like it or not. We'll increase our listening skills together, starting with this question, and we'll hear the implications of this question for our life. Implication number one is a silent one. What God didn't say is as revealing as what He did say. God didn't ask, why have you done this? It seems to me that so many self-help books are consumed with why, not where. And after spending years trying to pursue the whys of life, I've concluded the motivation behind an action is not very liberating. Even if I do get to the place where I understand my actions or your actions, and it's doubtful I ever will, 
That knowledge does not free me from defeating behavior. The 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous does not begin with the question, why? It begins with the admission that one is powerless over an addiction, moves on to acknowledging the existence of a higher power and then making a commitment to that higher power. I've come to the conclusion that in too many cases, searching for the why can prove to be unproductive and unending. A second question God did not ask is, what can I do? God wasn't entirely surprised by this new state of affairs. He must have known all along that there would be a terrible price to pay if he was going to continue on in a relationship with his creation. Too many times the question, what can I do, is for us, not for the other person. Here's why. My doing for you, what you can do for yourself, ends up impoverishing, depriving, weakening you. There are those that just love being rescuers. Any rescuers today? God's question was asked out of His love for creation, not out of a, some sort of dysfunctional need to rescue. God knew all along what He would do. He knew that there was a difference between rescuing and loving. Implication number two. It's a loving one. The question indicates, first of all, that God's our friend. He's not the one that has withdrawn. He still loves us. In the same book of the Bible, Genesis, we read that Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness and, it says, he was called the friend of God. Watch that. That's a radically different definition of righteousness than most religious people today would understand or accept. Many seem to equate righteousness with good works. God seems to settle for our trust. God's question also indicates he knew the worst. Uh, he knew the evil that had been done. He still loves us. He's not shocked, grieved, yes. Shocked, no. And it's useless to hide. Secrets can't be hit, uh, kept from him. And so I don't think we can ever say this too much in church. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how revolting you've been to yourself or other people, God already knows. And the simple question, where are you, reveals God's forgiving nature. Regardless of what Adam and Eve had done, notice God expects the relationship to continue. He doesn't storm off in anger. He's in the same place at the same time every day making reconciliation possible. He's the God who is there. And He's always there for you too. There are silent implications. There are loving implications. But we're not finished. The third one is a difficult implication. Although Adam told God that he was ashamed of what he had done, you will notice that he went on to offer a self-defense. He denied his responsibility in the whole affair. He blamed Eve for the mess that they were in. He even implicated God. He told God 
This woman, whom you gave me, gave me the forbidden fruit. In other words, God, it's partly your fault too. For giving me the wrong partner. Ladies, you know any men who are still blaming God and their wife because they refuse to grow up? Don't, no, don't answer that. Don't answer that. That's a rhetorical question entirely. So God asks Eve what's going on. And she blames the servant, serpent. You know any women today who would like to say, well, the devil made me do it? But let's not spend any more time casting stones at Adam and Eve. Let's just hear God ask us the question. Where are you? Well, we can say we've drifted out of the garden. But it's not our fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my children's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's the fact that I don't have a spouse that's the problem. And the more I think about it, a lot of this is God's fault. I didn't get to choose where I'd be born, when I'd be born, my racial background. The fact is, for much of life, I don't get to choose. I get to trust. That's what I get to do. A theologian has said, to sin is humankind's condition. To pretend that we're not a sinner, that's our sin. To hide, to cover up, to deny, to project. Adam thought he was hiding from God when in reality he was hiding from himself and his responsibility. God knew where Adam was all along. But he asked the question because Adam didn't know where he was. Our separation from God is the result of our pretended innocence, not our guilt. God's already taken care of your guilt. That price has already been paid for. It's our self-justification that keeps God at arm's length, and the arm is ours. Some believe they don't need God. Maybe you know people like that. There are those that think they're perfectly happy without God. Why should we respond to Him? But that posture that we're self-sufficient, that our lives are together all the time, that takes a lot of psychic energy to maintain. A man's driving his motorcycle down the road on a six-lane highway in traffic when a wasp flies inside his shirt and begins to sting him. And so in order to maintain control of the bike, he has to remain composed until he can find a place to safely pull over and rip his shirt off. He eventually does, but not before being stung repeatedly. That image. I know people like that. They're driving 80 miles an hour down the freeway of life, desperately trying to look composed, all the while being bitten by the wasp of meaninglessness and purposelessness and powerlessness. It takes enormous effort to look pleasant and unruffled in order to keep up a front for others. And we can look self-sufficient and happy all the while being stung to death by any number of wasps on the inside. Some are hiding because they're convinced they're beyond hope. 
They think that even God's grace can't help them, can't reach that far. We've messed up so often for so long, we can't be redeemed. Let me just remind you that the faithful in the Bible aren't described as being perfect. Most had major flaws, but they had this in common. They never gave up on the fact that God never gave up on them. Even when they gave up on themselves. That's the trust that God accepts to get back into a right relationship with Him. Lastly, we have a personal implication. I know you love it when I get personal with you. Anybody hiding today? Our hiding places can be as varied as our personality. Some of us are hiding in busyness. We may be hiding in some addiction, some power in our life over which we can't seem to get control. We may be hiding behind disillusionment or disappointment. Maybe it's a perceived injustice. Maybe you're hiding behind someone else waiting for them to rescue you instead of taking responsibility for yourself. But out of this hide-and-seek story, we learn to trust God and love people. The expectation that others are always going to be trustworthy is bound to end in disappointment. Most people are just like you and me. We're not trustworthy 100% of the time. So our job is to love 100% of the time. God is the only one who's trustworthy. And we can come out of our hiding and we can trust Him with our lives, even the worst part of our lives, and He will prove to be trustworthy 100% of the time. Well, when we admit that we sometimes hide from God, I do, there's an additional implication that's, that's also very difficult for me to admit. Really difficult for me to admit. And that is this. I'm not always where I think I am. And even more serious, I don't always know that I don't know. It's one thing to be lost. It's another thing to be lost and not know you're lost. We're not always where we think we are, relationally, financially, spiritually, emotionally. We think we're in control, and with just one bite of an apple, bang, we find ourselves in an entirely different place. The first book in the Bible, it opens with humankind hiding. The Gospels open with the message, you need to change. That's the essence of the word repent. We need to change. Because some of the things we think we know, we don't. Some of the things we think we've achieved, we haven't. And most of all, we need to change about the way we think about why we're living and who we're living for. 
That's the essence of the Christian message. Admitting getting lost and being found by God. And so I suppose, if there's a right answer to today's question, where are you? It's at the very least, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And because of that, life is not the way it's supposed to be. If you're looking for complete satisfaction and fulfillment in this life, you'll end up disenchanted eventually. We're in the same place Adam and Eve found themselves, east of Eden, separated from the kind of relationship God intended, the shalom that He wanted us to inhabit. So, what have you heard today? Remember, you all agreed you're going to hone your spiritual listening skills. Do you remember committing that? I mean, the five of you that did? Just be us chatting this month. Here's what I've heard this week. Because I tried to listen to the question. We don't need to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to look for someone else to rescue us. We don't have to blame. We don't even have to know it all. We do need to listen more. Demand less. We need simply to trust. My mentor in the profession of fundraising, which is my day job, always said that when you're asking for a particularly large gift from a major donor for a worthy cause, that you don't ask for the gift. You listen for the gift. By that he meant, the donor you're talking to already has a gift in mind and a cause in mind toward which they want to give. And so your job is to listen for the gift, to elicit the gift, not solicit the gift. Maybe if you listen close enough right now, you may just hear the gift God wants to give you.